Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. A founder's journey has its highs and lows. It's not a linear path. Every founder is also a regular person, filled with high hopes and big dreams. That middle part of their story, before they reach the top, is where we can catch them at their fullest potential. What we learn of their past gives us a glimpse into their future. This is Founder Stories. Our founders today are bringing optimism back to small businesses. Both Hasib Malik and Iman Jamal grew up in Pakistan, studied in the UK, and returned home to start their fintech business. This couple's dedication to their business stems from the belief that even mom and pop shops should have access to affordable financial services. This is the story of Credit Book. Hasib, do you want to go? Yeah, I can go. I can go. Who am I? I'm Hasib Malik, born and raised in Karachi, currently CEO, co-founder at Credit Book, which is a fintech digitizing small mom and pop shops in Pakistan and giving them affordable financial services. All my childhood, teenage, weird experiences right here in Karachi. Went to a school called Karachi Grammar School, which was a private school, essentially, that really builds a bubble around oneself. And I think the first time after going to university in England for three years at City University London, just meeting different cultures, different backgrounds was the first time I got really challenged about my values, my beliefs. I think the best period or the best inflection point in breaking that bubble for me happened back in Pakistan, in Karachi. What really led me, I think, to form my own kind of thesis of how do we improve people from moving from the bottom of the pyramid to, to the middle class and I think for me personally, I really understood that there were two notable factors in that, which were either financial services or transport and the affordability and accessibility of both of them and went to business school after that. It was really that point in in working back in Pakistan, coming back from university that really challenged my, the the bubble that I kind of like surrounded myself in. I think a lot about, you know, where my entrepreneurial spirit comes from two people that I don't think understand their their influence. It was very much implicit, but it was my grandfather specifically and uh, my father as well. You know, growing up in, in Karachi in Pakistan, 2011 is a year that I'll talk about it being a super weird year. Just two notable figures in, in my, my grandfather and my father. Just a series of like memories with the two of them. I think one thing that unites both of them is just the their history in how they've been able to build the lives that they have. Pakistan post-partition, you have to really create your own opportunities, essentially. And I think that's what unites both my grandfather and my father. My dad, coming from a, a middle-class kind of background, very, very ambitious to push his education as far as he could. You know, at the age of 14, he would be selling kebabs outside on the streets, just getting money. That allowed him to get into a scholarship in the U.S. to complete his high school. That kind of hunger, that desire to not let environments dictate your fate, but really being a master of your own fate. 
kind of really rang through for me. He took the plunge to entrepreneurship a little bit later in his life, like in his late 40s. Before that was very much in the hotel sector. But my grandfather, he, again, very much that classic, cheesy, honest living. He just took a lot of risk, right? Like he built out his own career in the electronics kind of industry, learned as much as he could, and then set up his own business as a franchise for one of the largest air conditioning supply companies from Denmark. And then he's just kind of like grown that through. And, and now my mom's brother, he's taking that over and another level and another scale. But like, I very vividly remember even growing up as a child, like where that started and where it's now. The earliest memories that I remember of, of my grandfather is his influence to let me know that you're never ever too old to always learn and i remember there was this time where we were every morning we would go to the market and uh, either he would be filling out for the lottery or like we'd be buying like some groceries during those trips i got really obsessed with fish and that's where my love for like seafood kind of come from and cooking and i would just stand in front of the fishmonger and just see what fish was being brought in every single day and I'd have my conversations with the fishmonger and my grandfather like was always surprised at why was I so obsessed with it. One day he just asked me, he's like, which fish should I get? I pointed it out to him and he said, why? And I told him because I know that that's the, the fresh thing. He said, how do you know it's, it's fresh? And because the fishmonger would tell me to open up the gill of the fish and like smell for like smell that stench that you normally get from fish and that's how you know. If it smells salty, it means it's super fresh, but if it gives that pungency, it means that it's about to like lose its shelf life, essentially. And he was just like, I, I've learned something new from you every day. And since that day, he would actually, not that he would actually buy fish, but he would actually come with me to those areas and he'd be like, hey, that, that one's fresh today, isn't it? And like, tell me that one's fresh. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's fresh. So like, you know, he was like in his, in his 70s at that period and he's just learning from an eight-year-old. and. It just kind of taught me that your learning never ever stops, and as long as you're humble, it, it I think it's a it's a key ingredient to to being an entrepreneur. You had mentioned that post partition was a tough time. Can you kind of explain to the audience, paint a picture of what that actually meant? Books and movies have been written about what that beard was on either side of the border, to the point where I think the first aspect was just human value, and you would always be concerned if. Your friend, your family member that was crossing the border, that was coming in through a train, would actually make it on both sides of the border. There would be ambushes and lots of sad stories about, you know, in those ambushes, how people would get killed. So I think that was the first thing. The second thing is if you were moving across the border, you actually had to set your life to zero. So you could have been a very successful businessman in New Delhi which is where my grandfather came from. He studied in Aligarh University. You could just move across the border and you, if you were taking that decision, you'd have to leave every single thing behind. There are cases still today where people have their houses or their ancestral homes that have been taken away from them on either side of the border. So literally it was a, and of course there were already some established businesses on the Pakistan side. You have some big families that have continue to be able to live their legacies and, and continue to build upon them. But for most people, they have to just start from scratch. Karachi started out as the capital, super vibrant, very, very secular. The Parsi community played a huge role in facilitating business and business activity in Karachi and continue to do that today. You see pictures of like the 60s, 70s, you had nightclubs, you had casinos. And then like when martial law got imposed and 
there was a big religious shift and many of those enterprises took a turn for the worse. Lots of nationalization took place all across the country, which affected the economy in the long run. And giving that void to strong religious voices really kind of like broke a little bit of the secularity in Karachi specifically. Even though we were growing relatively, I would say it was a clean city. Karachi is a city, now it's either one of the fastest or the fastest growing metropolis in the world today. 25 million people. It's New York on steroids, I would say. Quite literally, if you can imagine anything like that. Karachi's just been growing at a ridiculous pace. Karachi was known to be the city of lights. You look around you and you see an entrepreneur every meter. And the entrepreneurial spirit really, really kicks in. In Karachi, if you're gonna make it, you have to make it on your own. No one's kind of like looking out for you as a result. People are super direct. You don't have to really waste a lot of time with knowing where you kind of stand with people over here. Time goes by super fast. What happened, I would say, I connect myself to my childhood, which is in the 90s. You saw that transition like kind of take place, like Karachi, no more that secular environment. We either became politicized in different respects, which brought its own kind of complications with regards to safety. And that just kind of like heightened. And I would say that it was all still quite manageable and what you would expect from a really big growing city. But I think the war on terror in 2001 was a big pivotal point for inflection point for Pakistan as a country. That just meant that we started to polarize a lot opinions a lot faster. It became a very black and white kind of stance at the time when the government had to side with the U.S. on the war on terror. And that just kind of meant that extremist factions start to take action because of Pakistan's involvement on the war on terror. Karachi, more than any other city, hurt the most. And I think Pakistan felt that those effects. And it meant that the height of that volatility for us was in our teenage years. I think the world went through you know, the financial crisis of 2008, but we went through a city crisis in, from 2008 to 2012, where muggings were rampant. You wouldn't meet an individual who hadn't been mugged. It was a very, very common story. Those types of things heightened to such a point where I think in 2010, schools in Karachi increased the, the sizes of their walls, put barbed wire around it, and uh, had snipers, believe it or not, like on the roofs. We had metal detectors at the entrance of our schools. It literally felt like our schools became prison. My name is Iman Jamal, and I'm co-founder and head of design at Creditbook. I grew up, I have like a very sort of happy space in my memory when it comes to growing up in Karachi. And I think that's because I, I grew up around a pretty sort of full family. All four of my grandparents were part of that journey in a sense. And both my grandmothers actually, I think, played a really strong role in my early life. Both really independent women in different ways. Their families migrated from India. My maternal side of my family comes from a state in Punjab that ceded to Pakistan, so they consciously actually decided to be part of Pakistan when Pakistan and India split. Paternal side of my family were part of the Zoroastrian community in Pakistan, so they sort of built one of the first hotels in Karachi. And that's where I actually spent the first sort of decade of my of my life. Overall, the sort of support I had from my family, um, particularly as a, as a girl in Karachi, was really strong. There was never 
anything that they they sort of stopped me from doing, right? It was never like, don't do this or don't do that because you're a girl. And I think that played a really strong role in driving my ambition. There was also the role of my daddy, so my grandmother. She was sort of a very active person in terms of charity. So she set up the first institute of cerebral palsy over here. But we did, we grew up in the hotel. I would spend a lot of my days after school going down to my dad's office and observing him manage staff, make decisions. He also was an airline manager for Cathay Pacific. Just that exposure and that ability to like watch him at work very closely played a huge role in some of the stuff I picked up pretty early in life. I remember Lufthansa, air hostesses and, and pilots and stuff. They would come and they'd stay there overnight. I think it was a lot more active and, and this sort of scene was flourishing early in my life. But then when stuff sort of went downhill in terms of politics, my family actually sold the hotel when I was 12 or 13. Geopolitics and, and the instability in Pakistan had started permeating basically every area of life. There was sort of... An overall sense in most places where if a parent could send their, their kid to study outside of Pakistan, usually in the U.S. or, or the U.K., they would encourage them to stay there because nobody really knew where things were going here and things weren't looking great at the time. I decided to study politics, philosophy and economics. I went to the University of Warwick in the U.K. and hated the degree, didn't really enjoy the way economics was taught. Also studying in the UK, I think, is probably a different experience from the US. So once I graduated, there was a bit of like a feeling of uh, something amiss. I felt like there was more I wanted to experience in terms of an education. So I actually came back to Pakistan for a little while and worked with a microfinance organization over here, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And the motivation really was to solve problems, spend time understanding a sense of the greater problem over here, which is that like people don't have access to finance. The number of choices there are very limited, so you don't actually have the information that you need that'll help you sort of empower you to make better decisions for your life. After that, I went to Spain, so ESADA University, focused on social innovation there, studied innovation and entrepreneurship. And I think that was a really a great experience because it sort of seemed to rebalance what I studied in the UK, which was much more theoretical and this was very hands-on. Spent about a year and a half there in, in living in Barcelona, then went to Amsterdam for the majority of a year, worked on a fintech, researching emerging trends, and then still hadn't had my fill of education. <laughs> so I was uh, thinking of applying to a PhD program, but I got in. UCL, so University College London, to study technology and public policy. By this point, I think it was very clear to me that technology was an area that, that excited me. Stayed on there and worked on a few different projects. One of them was with UN Habitat, another was with the International Renewable Energy Agency. And then finally, sort of everything came full circle, or it seems like it did, and moved back to Pakistan two years ago. Now we get to talk about the lovely story of how the two of you met do you guys remember the first time you all met and what that was like? <laughs> I wonder if we have like different memories of this. So let us see. Let's keep going. I'd seen Iman around because we were in different high schools, but in the same year. Didn't know her, didn't interact. In Karachi and I think in Pakistan, even till today, there's this big culture around after school tuition. Sometimes just the, the schooling curriculum is, uh, 
in the way it started is, is, is not in the best way at the at this current period in time but this would be about 2009 we actually went to the same after school math tuition i actually knew a few of iman's friends so we had some mutual friends in in, in common uh, the first time i think we interacted was when i had to change my time and i i came to her class and for some reason i don't know whether it's iman's stupidity or like just how good i was at acting really intelligent but she asked me a question around <laughs> what was it iman like i think it was like something like it was geometry there's something around geometry <laughs> and i looked at her the most blank face but i was like look this this girl has just talked to me so i just got to got to keep this line open and l- let's see if we can figure something out so i just started mumbling a bunch of stuff <laughs> like she just looks at me after a while and she's like you don't know what the hell you're talking about do you and i was like yep not at all and i think <laughs> that that was the first time we interacted and we stayed in touch and we had a few more of those interactions after school and then actually went to london and met up over there and and hung out a little bit I think that's my recollection Iman what do you think is that am I off No I I think it's pretty pretty much on point yeah my first memory is is at that tuition but I don't remember asking you the geometry question I just remember this dude who would like the whole room would start smelling like in like abercrombie because <laughs> he like put so much cologne on uh, so it was very easy to like remember who this person is A time I remember spending time and hanging out with the sea was uh, on a summer vacation in London. Just sort of like these teenagers going to the Odeon Cinema, watching a movie, walking out of a movie actually, as far as I remember, um, in <laughs> Leicester Square. I think going to Thorpe Park at some point, and yeah, pretty, pretty much the same summer you remember, Mesh. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think all Pakistanis have the same memory of summers in London, which was. start in marble arch end up in leicester square repeat every day <laughs> i was going to start a consulting job in london and so i remember a sense of more optimism coming from pakistan at the time and this was around 2019 and at this point this is sort of when o2 1 disrupt the conference i think a tech conference essentially i'm not sure when it started but i remember hearing more about startups in pakistan you heard about like kareem by kia So the sense of opportunity that felt like it had been lost before felt like it was coming back in a way. Hasib and I were constantly sort of having conversations at this point around whether we want to move back to Pakistan and we knew we sort of did want to try. If we did, what would we do there, right? This friend of mine runs a company called Designist. He said, "Why don't you come and work on a service design project with me?" What excited me about that conversation was that He was like, "Look, we're working on a project for like a financial institution. We'd go out in the field and actually spend time with these users and these people, and essentially understand the problems through observing them and speaking to them. And it was that part that sort of connected with the idea of like ethnography and anthropology. So, worked on a project with him for about five months. It was sort of studying financial inclusion. The insights from there were really, I think, for me." coming out really strong around fintech and the lack of access to financial products and services and how there was like a, a serious sort of disconnect between the design of financial services and the people and most of the country essentially particularly the the micro small and medium enterprise sector which contributes to a sizable amount of the gdp and yet these people that we went and spoke to were all demonstrating what you see as as a leapfrog effect where 
they have smartphones. At this point, a lot of cheap Androids from China had sort of entered the market. They all use WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, um, no tech, TikTok at this point. That, that comes in a bit later. Despite a lack of sort of advanced educational experience. So I shared this information with Haseeb. I'll let him tell you more from there. In my previous experiences, I definitely lacked the user's voice in building product. I think that weakness Iman addresses and addresses it in such a powerful way, which it became a very objective decision is that if we did something together, I think the complement of our skill sets increase any project's chance of success. The why of like starting a company when we also have like such a close personal relationship and design decisions, user research decisions, user voice decisions will always be Iman's and like strategy, culture, team building would always be, you know, my kind of forte. You know, rewinding back and for me, I very quickly saw what private enterprise can do to fill those voids and create change. And um, if you're solving really powerful problems and you're creating both customer value and business value, then how fast you can actually scale those those solutions. And that's what really drew me into like entrepreneurship and like private enterprise. Consumer lending the way that infrastructure was set up in Pakistan, the collection journeys had a lot of high friction because in Pakistan, uh, digital payments, if you were to go through that as a use case, you have to often visit shops that are agents of telecom providers or mobile wallets to either like get your cash out or for you to deposit your cash in to make a, a collection. And so when Iman started to share her insights of her research, it kind of like clicked because she was just like, you know, you, we can't include everyone overnight. And if we focused on these small mom and pop shops of various business categories in Pakistan, they have high digital penetration with regards to the proliferation of smartphone and also constitute like 30% of Pakistan's GDP, but they have no growth levers, right? So, and by growth levers, I just mean, you know, the ability to use finance to grow your business. Today, the way that's done is, is through really like taking loans from or help from your friends and family, but it always happens out of circumstance rather than opportunity. Even then, entrepreneurs today are not confident in taking those loans because they're just not confident in paying back or rather paying back on time. And it really stems from the amount of how volatile the cash flows are. And so Iman and I became obsessed about solving for this cash flow problem or cash flow volatility for these businesses. And we formed a hypothesis, which was that like, hey, if we can reduce the volatility in these cash flows, we can shift behavior to entrepreneurs where they can actually view financial services as an opportunity rather than only use it in periods of circumstance. And the first thing we did was experiments in November 2019. And I think the best one that came about was this communication intervention, which was just encouraging entrepreneurs to let their customers know how much credit they've taken from them and when they're supposed to pay back. And what we saw was that like, you know, cash flows immediately improved in the first four weeks. But I think the aha moment for us really was like, 12 weeks on, we saw that just because of that intervention, cash flows became so stable for many of these entrepreneurs that we saw them actually going into their communities or asking their community members to extend a loan to them so that they could actually grow their businesses. Mom and pop shops in Pakistan, those methods are very much paper-based. So about how to manage your businesses, it means pen and paper, a series of different registers or notebooks, 
to you know record your sales to record the credit that you've either taken from a supplier or from a customer that's really where the the problem starts is because everything is recorded on paper there's no real transparency between one supplier or one's customer as a result arguments will happen relationships will be spoiled and often the entrepreneur has to concede right because losing a customer or losing a supplier is way more detrimental than just being right about something literally you know maybe 10 feet wide 10 feet high and about like 20 feet deep right like so literally holes in the wall they'd be selling anything from like fast moving consumer goods like shampoos and to like groceries like eggs and milk to garments and you know finished products because of those inefficiencies being on paper you have to deal with illegible handwriting you have to deal with spending 2 hours every single day reconciling your accounts and so you lose track of who owes you what and what product is selling better than the other and in your business and you just kind of go into this autopilot mode where you're so frustrated with how fragmented information is that you just start setting targets for yourself that hey i just need to earn like $100 every month to keep the lights on and i think the powerful thing that credibook has done is build out a very simple version of quickbooks a hyper local version of it that's usable that gives you insights that gives you control of your credit cycles and most importantly gives you instantaneous value within the first 4 weeks that allows you to stick onto the product and keep using it and then like open yourselves up for those growth opportunities in many ways sometimes when i'm talking to like hasib or anybody i see myself as a bit of an accidental founder where consciously i don't think you could have foreseen where things would go especially when you're starting a company we had started speaking to like a friend of ours a really old school friend of hasib's describing the problem and the ideas we had and he turned around he was like hey listen you guys have to meet my brother it sounds like he's solving something very similar and is already like building it out and with that we met hisham and the three of us instantly sort of clicked over the problem hisham had already found a software engineer to start testing the problem with and that's where i think started coming together it was actually very i think raw so when you hear founders say that you know it's like two people getting a room or three people getting in a room or a garage and building something out it wasn't a room or, or a garage but it was a, a small like office space that we went into and the three of us and an engineer right before that before we we had this early team come together we started just doing a bunch of experiments so we'd go out in the market spend time with entrepreneurs understand speak to them and start testing ideas and one of the ideas that really really stuck was this idea of of giving them a fixed payment schedule and a reminder system to get people who had taken money from them to pay them back and it was just literally an organic experiment which was like every saturday tell the customer who's taken money from you whatsapp them nudge them to pay you back that's it and see if your repayment cycle increases 
What we found was that nudge was so effective that money started coming back faster. And this was amongst a group of about 30 entrepreneurs. Fast forward to June of 2020, we started scraping the internet, finding people to call, telling them to download this MVP version of the app and launch pretty shortly after that. And what happened after that, I think was, I think the magic that you need to see something working. The way we saw 18,000 retailers come onto the platform within sort of a month of running. By about November, we were a team of about 11 people. And at this point, I think everything we had done was consciously to sort of prove out what we were building, understand it better, understand what like our go-to-market strategy is like, what adoption is like, get a sense of retention on the app, and only then go towards raising any sort of funding. In terms of like information and data, it's not that complex. And then after that, we went for our first round of funding and we, didn't go to institutional investors at the time, so we identified sort of strategic angels that could help us on our journey. It was easy to sort of identify where people who could help us on this journey and would be invested in it sit. And so we started speaking to people in our network, identified we had a small amount of capital, about 150000 to help scale things up a bit. Then we went in and applied for a grant, actually. They were focused on women in tech, and we got a, a small grant to help us build out the product further. And then we went for our first round of funding early last year, actually. And that was our first sort of interaction with VCs and institutional funding. So our seed round. That came with a lot of excitement because of the kind of growth we were seeing with the product. But it also comes with challenges because I don't think raising funding in Pakistan was as easy as as people think it might be now. There was still a lot of risk associated with investors looking at Pakistan, but they were still like, ah, Pakistan, okay, I don't know, I don't know. So there are a lot of those conversations. I would say that was the early stage and now we're sort of in the growth stage. So today we're about 55 people in the company and Seep can tell you all about the kind of challenges that come with that. I think we all knew what problem we wanted to solve for and who we wanted to solve for. I think we were trying to land on the right idea, but we had some very concrete prerequisites, which were like, we wanted to build a profitable company. We wanted to build a generation-defining company with long-term value. It should be asset light as well. When it came to fundraising as well, we knew that we should be putting our money where our mouths are and really bootstrap the company and understand the pain of spending every single dollar and how to get the most out of it and make that really, really ingrained into the culture of the company. I think one thing that we feel exceptionally proud about at Crybook is that we'll never, ever ask anyone to do anything that we wouldn't have done ourselves. Like, you know, talking to our customers at three, four in the morning, I think I think everyone's marriage was on the line at that point. <laughs> Onboarding like users one by one. You do so many things that don't scale in the early stages of a company, but are just so important for you to understand your user and understand the risks so much more. That is so exciting. What does marriage look like in a startup like this? Now you're in growth mode. I mean, I read something that you only took a few hours off to get married. Can you tell us about that day? beyond work there was also like a pandemic um, at large we got married sort of at the height of the pandemic basically right after launching credit book and ended up having what you now call a zoom wedding this was june of 2020 we did like a very very small ceremony where contrary in pakistan similar to india where you have 
hundreds of people at a wedding but we had like 30 people on zoom as well but i remember us sending a message out telling people that guys we're going to be offline tomorrow until 11 p.m. because we're getting married and people were like what like i remember even like hish was like what like you guys are getting married like what the hell and the next day there was no real celebration i remember both of us were back at it <laughs> what is the responsibility that you feel now being back in Pakistan and trying to build something different setting a new example of starting a business in Pakistan with a younger generation but two things we grew up with like a feeling of nostalgia that we never really had experienced it was sort of hearing it from parents and grandparents and they told us about how things were at one point and becoming a sort of great country in the world and then things just went to shit and that's what that's the story we'd hear at least I would hear sometimes and then fast forward to today and you see that there's this incredible potential in the country every entrepreneur or people doing business over here probably have tapped into and and that sort of gives gives a lot of meaning to the work there's a lot of frustration at times to be really honest like it isn't a piece of cake sometimes it's it's a bit more challenging as a woman than a man at times it, or at least it feels like it is and there's also a lot of opportunity i think as a woman that probably wasn't there before balancing that sense of of frustration and remembering why you're doing what you're doing it helps drive the mission quite a bit and more than anything i think being over here right now and building something means that you're actually tapping into like an incredible shift in energy like amongst young people in Pakistan when you go to work and you you sort of meet the kind of people that you do and and like your teams that you're building with there's a lot of excitement and drive and it creates a really really sort of hopeful and optimistic picture for the future so i wouldn't have anticipated this i think like even 5 years ago because consciously i hadn't seen myself here doing this but i think nothing else would make sense now now that i am here and there's a lot of drive and an energy that that comes from the ground up over here overall i feel pretty optimistic looking ahead this generation has really taken it on itself to shape the future of this country and take that responsibility and i think we as a generation are held bent to project the image that we want in this country and i think the first thing is like starting out small and, and building up these institutions of change uh and i think when you walk into companies like ours we get to take on initiatives using the vessel of credit book that we wouldn't be able to it, it's a platform for us to project our culture for us to project our vision for us to project who we are and to do it in a really natural way you know when you have enough of those institutions that becomes a movement and i think that is what is really exciting 2044 every election cycle is going to be decided by a first time voter in pakistan which is incredible right and these companies are made up of predominantly very very young aspiring hungry individuals that are absorbing this culture that are being able to take risks and being able to like you know move on forward i don't think it's like just a pakistan centric mindset right i think in a lot of emerging markets there's a higher sense of responsibility i think than there was in the past around things like intergenerational fairness and and what it means for like the next generation right whether that's related to like climate or other initiatives so i don't think this is just an optimism that is in pakistan i think it's people everywhere at least share some of that optimism
Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media and is hosted by me, Meshlakani. Thank you to Asim Malik and Iman Jamal for sharing your stories with us. To find out more about CreditBook, visit creditbook.pk. And that's it for season one of Founder Stories. But don't worry, we will be back for season two very soon. Thank you all for listening to this first season and for all our guests for sharing their journeys with us. The Founder Stories team includes Olivia Briley, Stephanie Horton, Ramsey Yunt, Xander Adams, and Haas Nasser. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. We appreciate you sharing this with your friends and, of course, subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Until next time. Thank you.